you don't necessarily want unrestricted time and unfettered resources. You know, that's not necessarily the recipe to come up with the most inventive things. If anything I've learned in my seven years of having Mindtash, it is that constraints can be powerful. Monday, one day, Tuesday, two day, Wednesday, when, what day? It's day three of this week of inspiration for 2021. My name is Chris Lynn, and I am your host and advocate for the Leading People First podcast, where we explore the effect leadership has on the employee experience so we can transform the workplace to be a more positive environment for all. Before we dive in, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get the Leading People First podcast downloaded to your device whenever new episodes come out. A lot of organizations and leaders are constantly working towards innovation, but they don't really know how to get there, and they try to force it by either removing obstacles or getting their top experts into a room to try and hammer it out. What we forget is that constraints are often the best ways to get innovation. And when it comes to design thinking, we can really focus on human-centered design to come to a solution that is truly people-first. This is why I talked with Kunor Bahal, the founder and CEO of Mindhatch, author of the book, I Quit, The Life-Affirming Joy of Giving Up, and Improv Comedian. Kunor delivers her unique mix of expertise in design thinking, organizational improv, innovation, facilitation, and diversity and inclusion to create the conditions for innovation and creativity to thrive. So let's get you ready to thrive this year and dive right on into this episode. Hi, Kunor. Thank you so much for coming on the Leading People First podcast. It's great to have you. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, you're doing some amazing work. Um, I'm really excited for your book to come out. You know, I just backed it on, um, on oh, I'm forgetting the platform, but, <laughs> you know, yeah, I'm, uh, Indiegogo. Yeah, yeah Indiegogo. Yeah. So I'm really excited to just uh, see it come out next year and, uh, you know, jumping right into it. What does it mean to you to lead people first? Yeah, to lead people first, you know, like I... I have a, a very small business, so uh, you know, and so I can't say that I'm necessarily leading or managing as many people as I was, say, when I was a consultant at Deloitte, you know, and like leading projects and teams of analysts and that sort of thing. But I think leading people first is like you're prioritizing the person and what they have to offer over anything else. Like you're looking at the business objective, the goals, the revenue, all in context of like the person is the conduit through which all of that happens. So, so when we look at things like leadership, how does your work in improv and design thinking kind of put, you know, the person first, how does that, how does that feed into this idea of leading people first? Yeah, you know, well, so design thinking, you know, it's also known as human centered design. So, you know, implicit in it is this idea of like putting the human being that is at the heart of your product service experience first and really designing for them, solving their problems, meeting their their needs um, before you even think about your business needs. Right. And so um, so, you know, implicit in design thinking, even though we're often designing solutions for external customers, you know, I also help clients apply it internally, you know, to this idea of employee experience, you know, and really, you know, looking at the journey that an employee goes through in your company is just that it's a journey, they are a stakeholder, they're someone you are serving, you know, they have an, an experience that you are curating for them, whether you realize it or not. 
And so I think, um, you know, in my design thinking work, that kind of people first, you know, kind of mentality comes up every single day. You know, it, it's just a matter of which kind of problem and which audience you're you're focusing it on. And and with improv, you know, I think improv training really a lot of it is about how do you respond and react to external stimulus? You know, and when you're working mm -hmm. in a team, oftentimes the external stimulus is is your people and what they're bringing to you. You know, and so I've kind of uh, done some some lecturing on like improvisational leadership and a big topic that comes up is like, you know, when you're a leader, you know, like the buck needs to stop with you, you know, so how a leader responds and reacts to what their people are bringing them is hugely important, you know? And so, you know, just as an example, you know, like if you're going to be an innovative leader, you better be aware of how you're responding and reacting to when people bring you their ideas, because if you're kind of like a no person or a but that'll never work kind of person, you know, that can have a real chilling effect, you know? So I think um, being a leader is also a lot about how you respond and react to your people. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I um, don't usually think about that, but that's a very good point because how we react actually speaks to the core of who we are and kind of what we value and what we believe, right? Yeah, so, for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and I would say that you, you know, even though you don't, quote unquote, manage people, I would still <laughs> say that you're a leader, and, you know, just yeah. based on just based on, you know, the, <laughs> the amazing work that you do and the amazing impact that you have. Um, and I'll share some insight, some praise that Michelle Heath shared with me, where she about you and she said that, you know, even though she connected with you through LinkedIn, she connected with you through some amazing women and was very impressed through your raw authenticity. So she said she put all the tough stuff on the table. Quitting has always been negative. I love how she makes it a positive, empowering people to lean in into giving stuff up to get more out of what makes them happy. She's an inspiration and I couldn't be happier to support her journey as an author and thought leader. Aw, so that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's so, so nice. Oh. I didn't know that was coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, again, I, you have this incredible impact again. And, and when we think about leadership, even though, again, when you don't have necessarily direct reports, you still have a very wide ripple effect on the people around you. And so I just wanted to kind of share that. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. And it is interesting, you know, I, you know, I do have, you know, I'm the only like full-time employee at my company at this moment, you know, that, that it's likely going to change in the coming years, but, you know, I do have um, a design thinking associate on my team. I've long had like a marketing assistant and executive assistant, you know, so I, I certainly am, I guess you could call it direct report. <laughs> that sounds kind of like corporate, you know, but I, I know, I know, I know what you mean, but it is making me reflect that. Like, I think um, I view how I work with, with the people I just mentioned in like, much more collaborative sense mm -hmm. than kind of like I am their leader kind of sense. And gotcha. so I think that's just like probably why I'm just realizing that now that I'm like, oh wait, shit. Yeah, I am I am a leader. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, about people still. So yeah. yeah. Well I mean I know that you are very kind of like anti well not anti bureaucracy, but you mm -hmm. don't oh, want you to have anti. you can say anti, yeah. Okay. Because yep. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you shared that you you don't like um that's one of the reasons why you left Deloitte, right? Is that it's like just this very bureaucratic kind of feel. 
So the question that I have for you is, you know, how do you and your organization, MindHatch, help organizations who want to apply design thinking, but their typical culture and behaviors is used to saying no, or they're always used to blocking ideas or just prohibiting new ideas because of all this red tape? Yeah, that's a really, that's like a million dollar question. So, um, so I definitely am kind of anti-bureaucracy in the sense that I don't necessarily desire to be as someone once said, the instrument of the oppression and like create yet another bureaucracy in this mm-hmm. world that is already filled with bureaucracy. I think, um, um, and, and not, it's not a knock on Deloitte. It's like private sector, nonprofit sector, everywhere there is like, you know, a burdensome bureaucracy that I think in my experience often gets in the way of just doing good work, you know? And yeah. that's kind of what I really wanted to focus on. It was like, I just want to focus on doing good work. I want an eight hour workday to be eight hours of work product, not four hours of work, two hours of playing office politics, one hour of bureaucratic stuff, you know, that kind of thing. So ever the consultant, it's about efficiency for me. Right. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of like my, my take on, on bureaucracy um, and, and why I'm kind of reluctant to become a part of a bureaucracy again. But yeah, so the question around like, how do I advise and help clients, you know, manage around their own red tape? I think, First of all, because I've had experience being in their shoes, I think I can bring empathy for their situation, you know, just kind of knowing what it feels like to have to like work within constraints, you know, and honestly get a little creative, you know, I think if anything I've learned in my seven years of having mind hash, it is that constraints can be powerful, you know, they can be helpful actually in being more creative, right? And so you don't necessarily want like, unrestricted time and unfettered resources, you know, that's not necessarily the recipe to come up with the most inventive things. So I have a respect for constraints, right? Um, I also have a healthy respect being on the outside that like, you know, we're not going to change the constraints, you know, I mean, even on the inside, I recognize my powerlessness to change the constraints, right? So it becomes more about like advising and working with with clients around like, okay, well, what is possible? And that's kind of like, a favorite question to ask in my line of work is what could be, what is possible, you know? Um, But I think I also, um, you know, I also think that my style is not necessarily this kind of like pie in the sky, unicorns and rainbows kind of creativity Mm -hmm. for lack of a better (laughs) way to describe it. You know, I, I think I do, if I can pat myself on the back a little bit, I think I do have a good instinct on when to be generative and expansive in that way and when to kind of bring things down to the earth and really focus on the business side of things, you know? And, and so I think that helps my clients kind of see the possibility of what, of what can be done. Um, I think also just from the get go of my, of my experience in innovation, I've, I think there's like a lot of respect due to incremental change, you know, and incremental innovation, you know, like, we like to hear the stories, many of them apocryphal about like disruptive innovation, but you know, in my observation, like things that are disruptive also often happen by accident. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. that someone set out to disrupt something as that they created this thing and potentially it was used in a new and different way that was unexpected and hence disruption occurred. Um, but I, I like to kind of support the idea that small changes can have great impact and that incremental change and incremental innovation is 
can be just as important to a business, you know, even if you're not wholesale changing the world, you know, yeah. like that is a hard, a hard goal to meet, you know? Yeah. 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 That disruptive innovation is like, you know, an overnight success as they say in like celebrity terms. Right. Um, yeah. But a lot of times, you know, you think, you think about how organizations or celebrities or whoever, you know, rock stars, they got to where they are. It was a lot of work. Like they just put yeah. in a ton of work and they kept exploring and trying new things and had this open mind of like, okay, well, like that didn't work this time. Like, let's try something else. And that goes back to the whole notion of design thinking, right? It's just this constant ideation and testing and play and then going back and learning from, from Absolutely. whatever you did. Yeah. The constant learning is a huge piece of it. You know, like I, when I'm working with clients, especially, or when I'm kind of training people in design thinking, I do talk a lot about like, okay, well, the idea is to do, be in this constant state of learning, but it's also this constant state of evaluating what have we learned? Have we learned enough to act? Mm -hmm. And like, it's this constant humbling process of the more you learn, the more you should be learning what you don't know. And like, then seeking to learn that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. like, um, so it takes a lot of like good gut instinct for sure, but also frankly, a lot of humility. Cause like just the more you learn, the more you will learn that you don't know, you know, and you have to kind of be um, uh, infinitely curious to keep wanting to learn more, you know? And, yeah. I love that because humility is something that's very uh, understated and, um, and just isn't, isn't something that's usually propped up as a leadership trait. Yeah. Right. You, you know, we have this really, uh, you know, we grew up in this world of this traditional, like, we have to be strong and we have to like know the answers and we have to like have yeah. these bold, like people and humility is not part of that. That's, you know, kind of the, I know you don't like the term soft skill, right. But it's like, yeah. that soft. it's that softer like side, but I, we yeah. do need to find a new word for it. I think. Yeah, we do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and so so when we think about things like, you know, humility, it's really important to have that humility because humil humility allows for reflection and learning. And the thing that I loved uh, was one of your articles that you said, you know, design thinking is the scientific method for innovation. Hmm. So when we look at your work around design thinking and improv, how do you get around the notion of failing fast and this resistance to change to actually start looking inward and, and learning and being able to take little nuggets from everything that you, that you learn. Oh yeah. God. Okay. That's a, uh, so how that happens is like in, ma in many different ways and it might vary from project to project, client to client day to day, you know? Um, and honestly, I think like in the past few years, I think the, I think the level of knowledge and awareness and sophistication around something like human-centered design has improved. And so I find myself working with fewer clients who are kind of like terrified of doing something new, you know, where honestly, like in the beginning of Mindhatch, a lot of my clients were like that. They were terrified of doing something new. Um, and it involved a lot of kind of coaching and design thinking therapy, you know, honestly, and which I love to do, I didn't mind yeah. it, you know, but I'm just kind of noticing that, that that shift has occurred a little bit with who I'm working with. Um, but I think like, um, so how, how do we kind of um, bridge that? And, and please stop me at any moment if I am answering a question that you did not answer or ask, <laughs> but, um, um, but the, um, you know, so I, I want to give this some thought. 
can you ask your question again? I'm sorry. Yeah. It was a really big question. <laughs> I, one of my pet peeves is when people on like panels or like just don't answer the question and like totally hit it. I hate it so much. So I don't want to do that. So I want to answer your question very directly. So yeah. please repeat it. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. How do you get around this notion of failing fast and the mm -hmm. resistance of change to be able to actually learn and, yeah. and like take nuggets from everything that you've done? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that idea of failing fast isn't something I necessarily need to help clients get around. It's actually a little bit more convincing them that testing and failing is a part of the process, yeah. you know? So whether it's fast or not, it's kind of besides the point. It's actually about, are you learning from these failures? Are they what I kind of call like productive failures, right? You know, you don't want to just like fail for the sake of saying you failed, right? Like no one is like, that's not the goal. The goal is not to fail, but it's like this, you've got to have this like healthy respect that in order to get to success, it's going to require productive failure along the way because yeah. like otherwise you don't know that you've succeeded right you don't know like there's yeah. no definition of success without a definition of failure right so um so I think of it in terms of like productive failure and so um and so where that comes up you know working with clients is like you know just sometimes it takes like like just um reminding them to have like faith in the process you know reminding them to have like faith in the methodologies you know that that they work and like part of that journey is kind of testing some things, but, but making really informed decisions about what to test and when, you know, like, I yeah. think like, especially in a human centered design process, you're in this constant state of like diagnosing where you are and then treating what has to happen next, diagnose and treat, diagnose and treat, you know, it's in this constant state of like evaluating what you've learned and then moving forward, evaluating, moving forward, you know, and, um, and so just kind of guiding them through that process and telling them like, okay, we are in this stage now, now this stage, like, what can we do with this? Um, and I think, I think improv, you know, um, is very useful as like a mindset training tool. There's lots of skills and behaviors that can be borrowed from improv that really um, help support, you know, doing design thinking with integrity, you know, like yeah. not being that plug and chug kind of, kind of thing. So um, improv definitely supports that ability to adapt, you know, the ability to act in the absence of, of complete information is huge, you mm -hmm. know, because there's no such thing as certainty, right? Yeah. You're never going to have a hundred percent information, you know, ever, yeah. ever, ever. Um, so improv is really good. I think for getting people just comfortable not just comfortable, but even excited by the unknown. I think it's really, really good for that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I had this, you know, I've had this misconception about improv when I was younger. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you did too, but I know you did some theater when you were younger, mm -hmm. but, um, and I know other people have this experience, but that like improv is just like being a quick thinker, right. And just thinking yeah. things on the spot. But I mean, it has, it's much more along the lines of like, having preparation and being ready and co-creation with others and being flexible, like in the moment, right. It's just this, totally. this more like side of adaptability. So can you talk about how that mindset of flexibility and the need for preparation applies to leadership? Oh yeah. So, so yeah. So um, to, to your point for sure, like I think a lot of people are shocked to learn that improv performers, which I've been performing for 10 years that we actually practice, you know, <laughs> like, like my teams, like before the pandemic, you know, we practice 
once a week, you know, and some people are surprised to hear that because they're like, oh, don't you just make it up, you know, but the thing is like, yes, we do make it up at a show, but we are in training to develop the skills and mindsets that are required so that we can do that live co-creation on the stage and be successful at it. And so you'd be shocked at how little of practice is about being funny. And it's about kind of active listening to each other. It's about accepting every offer. It's about yes, anding every offer and building on it. You know, it's a lot of these things that are so important to teamwork, collaboration, even what I think people should be doing as leaders, right? Mm -hmm. Like listening to people, you know, um, empowering people, you know, um, giving them support, you know? And so I think, um, you know, it's interesting. Like I, I remember one of the first conferences I attended after I moved to Seattle, this guy um, who's like a, a tech founder, um, I went to like something, uh, a talk he was leading and and he meant he mentioned just offhand that he said, like, if you ever have the opportunity to hire someone with improv experience or without improv experience, always hire the improviser. <laughs> That's what he said. Always hire the improviser, you yeah. know, because like, <laughs> they they just kind of bring that, you know, like um, uh, that those ineffable qualities, you know, that are, are honestly hard, hard to train. Yeah. So I think when it comes to leadership, it, it again goes back to that, you know, what kind of leader do you want to be? You know, I mean, do you want to be like a type of leader who's actually a micromanager and would like rather be doing the work, right? Then it's like, well, do the work, like don't mm -hmm. be a leader, right? You know, like not everyone has to be a leader. Not everyone has to be a manager, you know, um, or do you want to be the kind of leader who like gives people the space, you know, um, to to develop themselves, to show you what they, what they've gotten, you know, I think it's, it's really about what kind of leadership you want to, you want to provide. Um, and, you know, just given my background, I'm a fan of like nimble improvisational leadership, you know, and me as a leader, I think like, I'm always happy if say someone on my team comes to me and it's like, how should I do this? Like, I have no problem. And in fact, I delight in saying, I don't know, please go figure it out. You know, I, I honestly don't know. You know, I have no problem saying I don't know the answer to anyone. So, well, I'm just trying to look up the stat that you provided before, but I mean, uh, I think it's somewhere what, like 20 or 30 percent of in uh, of improv individuals are more productive than career program managers, I think is what you said. Oh, yeah, that's from right? a study out of MIT um, a few years back, I think that um, oh, I had to dig deep into my memory, but it they basically did kind of like, um, in terms of ideation, I think it was about coming up with new product ideas. And they took people who were career product managers, like 20 year veterans, um, and had them come up with ideas. And then they took a bunch of improv comedians and had them come up with ideas. And according to kind of like, uh, a, a, I, they didn't say judging panel, but I'm going to call it how they evaluated the ideas. One, the improvisers came up with far more ideas. They had greater quantity, yeah. but their ideas were also judged to be more creative. Yeah. So this kind of shows how I think in a lot of moments, expertise can sometimes be an unhelpful constraint. Yeah. And that, that makes me think of, you know, when we think about hiring, 
Mm. and recruiting like a lot of hiring managers have this ideal candidate in mind like this ideal employee and like it's someone that like checks all the boxes but you know we've we know that if someone who is uh kind of given the chance to grow in in the Mm -hmm. spot and to explore and be curious and learn more about the position they're actually going to be more successful in that role so that's Mm -hmm. that's also a really good point on how improv you know improvisation is useful in thing in scenarios like recruiting so yeah um, definitely it's like no one can bring you everything you put on paper but it's about you saying okay well what can they bring like what yeah. can they offer and and how can we make that into magic you know yeah. just what improvisers do on stage yeah absolutely one of the things you know i want to shift a little bit because you have your book coming out in april next year and in your book you talk about quitting so was there a time when you struggled around this notion around quitting? Because this idea of quitting is almost in direct opposition of th- something like design thinking and improv. So uh-huh. did you struggle when you were writing your book? Oh, I'm so, I'm so interested. I'd love to ask you a question back. Like, to, uh, please tell me, please tell me your thoughts on why quitting is in opposition to design thinking and improv. Yeah, well, I'm. Uh, it, it's this idea of, you know, not necessarily failure, but this idea of like giving up, right? Mm. Or this idea of, um, this idea that you're you're walking away from something. And I know that your book is a is about like quitting for joy and and for these positive moments. Mm. But again, just for most people, when they think of the word quit, there's this huge negative connotation to it. So how, like, I was just wondering if, you know, you struggled with that as you were writing, you know, between this notion of quit and design thinking, because again, they seem like very opposite things. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I love that perspective. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So I would say like, my struggle was, I, I think I, I was not always a quitter. I was not always someone who had positive associations with quitting as I do now. I definitely began my life and until probably my mid twenties um, was a perfectionist type, was kind of used to being good at things, was used to kind of being committed and doing all the right things and being rewarded for it, you know? And, and definitely once I entered the working world that changed dramatically. <laughs> and so I, um, And so I definitely have kind of a before and after of like who I was then and who I am now. And I think the quitting stories I have in my own life have definitely made me much more of a risk taker, you know, and it's funny, you think when I was 19, that was like the time to be risk taking, but no, I was pretty risk averse when I was 19, you know, and, um, um, and so, so like, yeah, my, so my kind of like struggle and like, I think why the book idea was appealing to me and it came to my mind was because I had had all these positive things happen because I left things behind and I'd always viewed me quitting a job or quitting a relationship or quitting even a friendship or a city as like putting me, accelerating my path toward what I wanted. I actually mm-hmm. viewed it as progress in my life, you know, whereas I think the, conventional wisdom in our society is that quitting represents failure. Quitting represents you couldn't handle it or you couldn't cut it. And it's like, should be a source of stigma and shame. Right. And like, you couldn't make it work, you know? And so, um, 
And I had the opposite experience to me. Quitting always got me closer to where I wanted to be, you know? And so um, how that comes to design thinking, you know, I actually think that I actually think there's a lot of connectivity between why someone like me, who is a design thinking practitioner is attracted to the idea of quitting and thinks quitting should be rethought and reimagined, you know, cause I think like, yeah. you know, a design thinking process, you know, definitely um, advocates for this idea of rapid iteration and like doing small appropriately resourced and costed um, experiments to like have more learning, you know, yeah, to yeah. like learn as much as you can as cheaply and, and quick as you can. Right. Um, so that you can re, re keep iterating um, yeah, yeah. and polishing. And I think like, you know, the people I, I interviewed for the book, as well as for my own experiences, you know, um, quitting quite often was the right choice when someone had learned enough about themselves that they knew this thing that they had in their lives was not serving them, was not meeting their values or was even violating their values, you know? And so I think it corresponds to that kind of constant learning, you know, and the more you are self-aware and know about yourself, the more, you know, like what you're willing to put up with and what you're not. Yeah. Right. And, and then, uh, and then a quit can be a joyful, progressive move in your life. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and when we think about, again, going back to this idea of design thinking and quitting, mm -hmm. you know, when you test your different ideas, like you got to know when it's like, yep, that one is not going to work rather than like constantly trying to like hammer it in. You know, yeah. I, I, I see, mm -hmm. I've seen that from a lot of leaders and organizations where they're like, like this idea has to work and they're, they try to like force yeah. it to work. Right. And it's like, yeah. stop, like you're beating a dead horse at this point. You're yeah. losing a lot of money because it's like that, that mean girls quote, it's like, stop trying to make fetch happen. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, like stop trying to force this to work just because you have to meet a deadline. You know, it's like a waste of resources, a waste, you know, it's just kind of yeah. like, you know, rethink, like always be questioning why, yeah. you know, why do we think this has to work? Why yeah. does it need to be this way? And yeah. Mm -hmm. And when we think about quitting, I know this is something that you wanted to talk about. Some individuals might feel more able to quit their situation, right? Yeah. And quitting is not equal for everyone because for sure. they may not have an ability to quit based on their situation. Mm -hmm. So how is quitting a privilege and how can we shift our dynamics as a society to allow people to feel safe to quit? Yeah, that. thanks for bringing that up. You know, that's definitely something that dawned on me by writing this book was that, you know, um, some things that are ripe for quitting definitely involve having the privilege of choice, right? And I think mm -hmm. out of the different types of quits that my book covers, I think that the two that come to mind the most that require privilege are quitting a job or a career and like quitting a marriage, you know? Um, so yeah, it's like, I'm not here to tell anyone, and everyone like, Hey, yeah, quit your job. If you hate it, you know, like if you can't afford to quit your job, you know, I mean, that's like, it's not a frivolous or impulsive act that, that you are able to take. Right. And, um, and same thing with marriage, you know, I got divorced this year and the moment I decided to end my marriage, I had this really profound kind of like sense wash over me of just how lucky I am as a woman and a South Asian woman to be able to make that choice. Like I never had a stress around 
Will I have a roof over my head? Will I have food on the table? You know, I never had a stress about what that decision would mean for like my livelihood or my safety, you know? And so it was really profound to me in that regard of quitting a marriage, like, wow, like I could make this choice because of my privilege, you know, and it was an, it was easier because of my privilege. And yeah. so um, I think other things in the book, like quitting friendships or quitting identities or quitting aspirations you have for yourself, maybe are less connected to privilege. But I think it's an important thing that I learned and I hope readers of the book kind of ponder is that um, so in some cases, quitting is an act of privilege for sure. Um, and just to kind of be mindful of that. I think the other side of that coin is, you know, a lot of, there are a lot of people out there who have, have the privilege to quit and don't use it. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of like, you know, I worked with a lot of wonderful people out my, my time at Deloitte, but I, I also remember quite a few of them had joined like right after undergrad and then like eight, nine years later. And I literally remember someone telling me like, I don't know what else I can do. Like I, I have no other ideas of where I could go or what I could do. And in my mind, I'm like, Oh my God, you could do so many things, you know, but it's, that's an example of someone who has education, has privilege, has savings, has health insurance, but like, isn't using the privilege, you know? And I yeah. think that is where, the societal stigma and shame can trip us up. You know, yeah. I think there's a lot of people who have the option to make big life choices for themselves that just aren't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think you've shown, you know, throughout your career that you've, you know, been that you will fight for like the little guy or oppressed mm -hmm. individuals. Um, you you've really shown to be a fighter for equality. And I want to share something from, you know, some praise from Varshini Balaji, where oh. she said in my first conversation with Kunor, she talked about how she doesn't believe in unpaid internships and mentioned that everyone needs to be paid for their work, especially women of color. Instantly, I realized that Kunor is a bold and thoughtful leader who seriously puts people at the forefront of her thinking and understands the nuances of systemic oppression. Kunor is deeply perceptive and encourages people to bring their complete and authentic selves to our work. It has been an immensely meaningful experience to work with a profoundly empathetic and selfless leader like Kunor. So, you know, when we look at things like oppression and diversity and inclusion, where do you see the intersection between design thinking, equality, and job growth, especially when it comes to reframing jobs that have previously been seen as so-called feminine or you know this idea that men just need to get over their own biases and beliefs mm -hmm. and like these like women held jobs in the past oh, okay yeah man you have big questions okay <laughs> um and first of all also I'm just like I'm like just knocked over by like I didn't know this is gonna be like a this is your life kind of, kind of <laughs> <laughs> like you like gathered intel from other people on me so I'm I'm a if my complexion allowed me to blush, I'd be blushing a lot right now. Um, but uh, th thanks for talking to Varshini and that's really, that's really sweet. Um, um, okay, so yeah. So the idea of kind of inequality, oppression, you know, I think, um, you know, what first comes to mind is like, um, there are systems working at play, right? And so there's this like very, um, a very appropriate, very famous quote by a, a design thinker 
Um, oh my God, the name is forgetting me at this moment, but it is um, the something the effect of the system is working exactly as designed, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really easy for people to think like, this is just the way things are, you know? And that is such a <laughs> insanely lazy, <laughs> you know, kind of like yeah. attitude, you know, that it's like, you know, no, like, like man and woman has created this world. We create society. We have agency. We have control over it. You know, like the systems at play, whether it's our offices, our companies, our governments, our school systems, like we have created them. Right. And so we have agency. And so it's kind of like, you know, someone like me works in innovation and creativity. Do not ever tell me, oh, it's because the way it's always been done. Like, like, no, that is like the quickest way to get me to smack you in the face is if you <laughs> say that. So, um, um, so I think that comes to mind, you know, and, and I think design thinking has a role to play, you know, I mean, certainly designers have had a role to play in designing these, you know, corrupt and racist systems over the years for sure. But what that means is that we also have the ability and the responsibility to design better systems, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and I think that's also the role of, of, of a leader, honestly. It's like, you know, you didn't, you don't just kind of like become a part of the oppression. It's like, you know, now you have influence. So how are you going to use it? I mean, that, that is a choice. Like you get to choose, are you going to leave it better off than where you got there? Or are you going to just toe the line and accept the status quo, you know, because it, it has benefited you, you know? And so, um, so that's kind of like, you know, a little, a little diatribe in my effort to answer your very big thought provoking <laughs> Um, and so, um, um, but yeah, I think design thinking has a, has a role to play, you know, like if, if you'll let it, you know, because we are about designing for people, we are about designing systems, you know, and I think, um, more and more, thankfully, this idea of inclusive design and, you know, um, as other universal design, you know, a lot of different offshoots of design are, are becoming a little bit more, um, mainstream, you know, and, yeah. um, and I'm always happy in whatever small way I can, you know, to kind of imbue my design projects, especially in the research stage with like, you know, making sure we have inclusivity in what kinds of customers you're speaking to, you know, and then that kind of thing. And it, it, it's just good business sense, you know, it's just like the business case for diversity is there, like been there, done that. Every study tells us if you want to be more innovative and creative, and have better bottom line, diverse and inclusive companies are, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, what are you waiting for? You know, if you actually care about your business, you will pursue uh, with integrity, again, you know, a diverse and inclusive uh, culture. Yeah. And, and going back to real quick, your, your notion of this, you know, this is the way things are, like as if that's a good enough reason yeah. Right. Like, I mean, why, whatever happened to evolving and becoming better and, and, and again, including the people that are being affected by this, we have to make the world, if we say we want to make the world a better place, mm -hmm. we have to talk to the people that it's affecting. Right. Exactly. And that's where human centered design comes from. And again, when we look at how that applies to the organization, you know, your employees are being affected with every little decision that you make no matter where you are in the organization, top, bottom, wherever, but it has an effect on the people around you and you need to be aware of that. Exactly. Yeah. And it, and it goes beyond 
just talking, right? It's also involving getting their participation, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, not, not merely looking at people different than you as kind of subjects to extract information from, you know, but like actually bringing them into the fold and empowering yeah. them and ha- letting them have influence, right? Is, is really yeah. important. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, as we wrap up, I do want to ask one last question. What mm-hmm. is the impact that you want to have on those uh, that you interact with? Mm. I want the people I interact with to come away feeling that they can do anything that that the world is full of possibilities yeah i love that um and i'll close with one more bit of praise from your friend juliana Meggi- is it Mejia? Uh, juliana Mejia Cardona. Oh, Juli- yeah thank you <laughs> wow i butchered her name that- oh it's cool <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna she's not gonna like me after that no you got mine right <laughs> So okay. what about, yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, well, so she shared, I live in constant awe of Kanoor Bihal. She, I feel so grateful to have met her years ago when I walked into an improv class and she changed my life. She opened the door to creative consulting and it was thanks to the experience she offered me, I was able to get a job in design thinking. I'm really grateful to her and grateful every day that I've met her. If I could describe Kanoor, it would be fearlessly powerful. Kanoor, you are the best. Thank you for everything that you do. So again, I think that you are, again, you're making that impact and you are making people feel like they are better off than they were. So just, I just want to- I never cry and I'm about to cry. (laughs) (laughs) Like you are one of like- Fewer than five people in my life, I can I can say who has made me cry. <laughs> so, like, um, um, that is that is lovely. And if I can if I can uh, be so bold as to say, Juliana was Mindhatch's first intern, and now I'm on the board of the amazing nonprofit she has founded called Street Entrepreneurs. So, I want to be a good board member and a good steward, and be sure to mention the name of her organization, which is wonderful yep. work. So. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Oh, yeah. You know, um, nerdy as ever, LinkedIn is is a great place to connect with me. Please follow me there. Shoot me a message. Um, uh, you can also um, learn more about the work I do at Mindhatch um, at mindhatchllc.com. And you can learn more about my book, um, which is titled I Quit the Life Affirming Joy of Giving Up at iquitbook.com. Awesome. Well, Kanoor, thank you again so much for coming on the podcast. This was so much fun. <laughs> I'm glad we could glad we could really go into these thought-provoking questions and um, really explore your your work. So thank you. Thank you so much. I can't believe um, I'm like overwhelmed by the amount of work and effort you put in and and the the people you found to the to comment on me. So thank you so much. I'm really overwhelmed right now. <laughs> Thank you for downloading and listening to the week of inspiration on the Leading People First podcast. I hope you can start looking at obstacles and constraints more as challenges to innovation. My own personal takeaway from Kunor was how we don't always have to make these giant leaps, but take those small steps to incremental innovation. If you want to learn more about Kunor and her awesome work, click on the links in the show notes. And if you know someone who is stuck and needs some inspiration, Share this episode with them and let them know that ideation and quitting is all part of the game. Let's keep the conversation going. Hit that subscribe button and share with us what you loved most about this episode on LinkedIn and Instagram. 
Thank you again for tuning in. We have two more guests over the next two days for this week of inspiration to kick off 2021. Keep leading people first and stay awesome.